This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. How's it, Nzanzi? Welcome to the third episode of our brand new podcast series. We unashamedly salute the unsung heroes of agriculture. We believe in the power of agriculture to create social cohesion in South Africa. My name is Kubus Lawrence, the co-founder of Foodform Zanzi. And with me today is Dawn Numdu, the editor of South Africa's leading agricultural and lifestyle news platform. Hey Kubus, what an experience it's been launching Farmers Inside Track. So for those of you who don't know, Farmers Inside Track is a free weekly newsletter with everything a farmer needs to know. To sign up is absolutely free. You just need to go to www.farmersinsidetrack.co.za. Joining us in the studio today is Justin Bonello. His neighborhood farm initiative is paving a new way for urban agriculture while developing the local economy. Do you want to win your share of 100,000 rand with VKB? Find a golden coin in one of our products, Grainfield Chickens, Magnificent Maize Meal, or Super Sure Bread and Flour at any participating store. The more you buy, the greater your chance of winning. This competition is proudly brought to you by VKB, celebrating their 100th year milestone. Visit vkb.co.za for more information. T's and C's apply. VKB, for the love of the land. Our guest today is one of the most famous foodies in South Africa. He is known on TV as the ultimate prime master. He's published a whole bunch of cookbooks. He's managed to combine his love of food with his love of adventure travel and make a whole international career out of that. Justin Bonello, welcome to Farmers Inside Track. Thank you. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> Hi, Justin. I just want to say officially how excited I was to finally meet you. <laughs> we love what you do, and it's so totally awesome to have you with us. Thank you. You know, I often say to people that there's only one difference between you and me, is that ultimately my work ends up on television. <laughs> and that's it. I can't understand how yeah. people who are on television, these public personalities, think yeah. that they're any better or worse than someone else. Mm. We're just all exactly the same. Yes. Mm. Justin, how did this all start out? Are you a city boy? Yes, I am a city boy. And, and there's a conversation I'm going to lead you into about that in a moment. Grew up in the city bowl of Cape Town, back at a time when milk was still delivered yeah, they have those little coupons, uh, a Greek cafe across the road who sort of looked after the convenience of the neighborhood. He put two girls through private school through that. We had a place called the Swiss Butcher. We had a place called Zervin's Bakery. So I grew up at a time when a bicycle in the city bowl represented freedom, where today it's become an event where parents put the, the bicycle in the back of the car, go to a park, mm-hmm. let their kids ride around for an hour or two, and then they go home. I think the City Bowl was completely different to what it is now. City Bowl, it's completely different to what it was then. You know, all those connections between neighborhoods, etc., have broken down. You don't have the, the bakers, the butchers, and the candlestick makers there anymore. But I have very, very fond memories of growing up in the City Bowl. And of course, what we are talking about mainly today is your transition from, I'm not sure if it's a complete transition, but... These days you are running a non-profit called Neighborhood Farm that focuses on urban farming and urban food security. 
How do you get from growing up in the city bowl to, to doing that? <laughs> to becoming that? an urban farmer. About five or six years ago, I did a, a bunch of shows with Woolworths. They sponsored the show, and they opened up their food production facilities to me. And that was everything from vegetables, aquaculture, feedlots, the whole lot. I came out of that journey thinking that I knew a lot about food and realizing that I knew nothing. Those series of journeys introduced me to sheep farmers in the Karoo. And in fact, one Corpus van Ho from a farm called Eerlandsvlei in, in the Tanko Karoo put it into perspective for me. He said, Justin, when I started farming, 200 lambs to market bought me a new bucky. He says, 200 lambs to market today doesn't even pay for the deposit on the bucky. And he went on to ask me how he had become worth so little. So that sparked another whole set of journeys through the Karoo where I engaged with farmers across the board. On a farm near Aberdeen, written in Afrikaans in the war was, I've injected myself with poison, don't worry, I'm going to go into the city to die. And I quickly realized that this conversation was that in the old days, farmers and consumers were connected if we weren't the farmers ourselves. And what's happened in the last sort of 100 years is that that gap has grown and it's an economic scale at the same time. So I say consumers are paying what they should be for food, but there's a whole series of middlemen that sit between the consumer and the farmer that put increasing pressure onto farmers to find new ways to increase their yields and thus, thus their profitability. And it's not a sustainable system. Farmers are custodians of the land. The minute you start putting them under pressure, they start using generally destructive methods. Anything from, if it's vegetables, chemical fertilizers and pesticides on their lands, and that's short-term gain and where they don't take into to account the downstream effect on everything else. If it's uh, domestic livestock, it's everything from hunting packs, gin traps, etc. The third part of it, I went into the Bavion's Kloof. A leopard had been trapped in a cage in the Bavion's Kloof. We collared it, released it and put it out into the wild. But the combination of those three things made me realize that the food system is broken. The second one was that we don't actually know how to live in cities. And for me, cities are, the, are a real problem for, for every person on the planet. But let's just take a moment to, to just bring it together and make people understand this mm. picture and, and to sort of describe it a bit. If people follow you on social media, they'll mm. see how beautiful it is. But just to get a concept and just to place it and how where it is based and what it is exactly. Yeah. So Neighborhood Farms is a series of urban farms based across uh, the South Peninsula of Cape Town. And it's quite important that when I looked at creating a business model around it, there were a couple of things that had to happen. One, it had to become economically viable or sustainable. And that's the only time you'll ever hear me talk about sustainable. The terrible thing about that word is that it implies maintaining the status quo. And mm. we're so far down the rabbit hole at the moment that we actually need to start looking at regenerative environments that we improve the status quo. Mm. Second thing, it would have to connect, I'd say, richer and poorer communities together and provide a bridge between them. A lot of the work in South Africa is focused on poor communities when it comes to food and nutrition, I found that both rich and poor communities are suffering from similar problems. The system would have to be fair to both poor communities and rich communities. And in fact, what we have is a model that where the richer communities subsidize the work that we do in poorer communities. The basic principle is we build large market gardens right in the middle of your neighborhood on underutilized ground. So anything from school grounds, hospital grounds, parks and recreation doesn't matter to us as long as it's available, as long as it has water. We then put up full market gardens that are vertical with uh, harvesting facilities, packaging facilities, cold storage, and retail, which is really important. So when I started this conversation, I said farmers don't get value for their money. I'll give you a prime example. A sheep farmer in the Karoo gets about 40 rand a kilo on the bone for his meat. We pay anywhere between 90 and 170 rand for that same piece of meat. 
So I realized that if I could connect communities directly to the food we produced, we could charge the same price at retailers or slightly less than they're charging. Farms themselves have a number of roles. The first one is, is education. Children that grow up in a city environment are completely disconnected from the food. They think that it comes shrink-wrapped in polystyrene. Mm -hmm. They don't know that tomato comes off a vine. They've never pulled a carrot out of the ground. They assume, in fact, my favorite way of looking at it is that currently children grow up thinking that all carrots are about 15 centimeters long with a sort of girth mm -hmm. that size. The truth is carrots, like certain parts of an anatomy, come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> but we don't know that. So it's a space where we can bring kids in, educate them about their food. We provide nutrient-dense organic produce into communities, and we use no chemicals or chemical fertilizers or pesticides, proving that organic production is a viable production method in urban environments. It creates employment. We only employ people hyper-locally, so this is anyone who works for us doesn't travel more than five kilometers to work, and this is critical in a country where people can lose up to a third of their income just getting to and from work. And importantly, the minute you start greening in any urban space, there's a number of really beautiful things that happen. One is your social connectivity improves. So we start seeing each other as human beings in a neutral space. And then there's a whole slew of other things, including uh, crime rate starts reducing, um, you giving people a, a nutrient-dense punch of, of really good vegetables that are harvested on the same day that they can be on your dinner table. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff as well. But that's sort of the outline of it. How do you see the role of urban farming in the food security mix going forward? Food security is a swear word for me because oh. everyone promotes food security. Truth is, is, in a country that's powered by money, you actually need job security. And then food security follows. So it's all fair and well to say someone can grow spinach in their backyard and mm. eat it. And I'm appreciative of that fact, but they can't buy data with it. They can't uh, buy airtime with it. They can't get to work with it. You know, they can't apply for a job without being able to travel somewhere. So we actually need job security and then food security follows. That said, in Ocean View, it's been quite an interesting journey for us. It's a community of 13,000 people, ex-apartheid community created when they uplifted the community from Simonstown and dumped them away from their livelihood in Ocean View. There's that old Bible saying about teach a man to fish. We're mm -hmm. just replacing fish with farm. What's critical in that is that you need to plug into the current economic system. So if you grow food, it's fine that you can eat it, but ideally you should be able to sell it. And with the price of food, fresh food at what it is today, the system can work. That's the key thing. People must be able to make a living from growing food in urban yeah. environments. Just having a, a bunch of spinach to eat doesn't cut. At each of your venues, you've got a retail shop selling to the public. It's underpinned by three models. The yeah. best one for us is selling directly to community. That's where you make your most margin. And I mean, listen, we've got 37 odd staff now. Uh, we only broke ground last year, March, so it's 18 months old. And I mean, the overheads are high to pay all those people a living wage. We avoid titles like farm worker, especially in a South African context. So all our staff are either market gardeners or head market gardeners. Some of them are called roamers. They work on our various school sites. So the first one is direct sales to community. The second one is your bulk buyers. For example, work with Wild Organics, give them a better price, but they are buying in bulk, and then they can distribute our produce in directly into other communities through box schemes. And then the third one is contract growing. So we are now contract growing for Pesto Princess. And we had to build the model on those three elements. One of them on their own exposes you too much to risk. Mm -hmm. The one is good returns, which we need. We only look at produce in two ways. Beautiful, beautiful produce. And that's the sort of stuff you're used to buying in Woolies or Pick and Pay or whatever the case is. And ugly, beautiful. 
Mm-hmm. And ugly beautiful for me is the beautiful stuff. You know, <laughs> it's, it's got a blemish on the leaf. It's still edible, everyone, or the carrot's slightly bent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still edible. It still packs a nutrient-dense punch. Mm-hmm. And that we make affordable in our under-resourced communities at the prices that they're currently paying for that same produce, except they're getting organic produce. Again, okay. this is not produce that's been picked three weeks ago and then stored in cold storage. This is picked when it's ripe and is then on your dinner table on the same day. And that's the way we had to build an economic model around the system. Um, It does mean that the farms can't be 200, 300 square meters is not big enough. The minimum size we'll look at is 2,000 square meters. And that we know economically can sustain itself. Maybe if I can just come in in terms of the people that's involved. Recently, you sort of posted about Alre Kloppers, uh, your garden guardian there at Ocean View. Must be an amazing guy. Tell us a bit about him and some of the other people involved. So what we've realized in under-resourced communities is we start with the schools first, not the big stuff, and it's to build up trust within those communities. I mean, Mm. there's so many failures in this space. In fact, nine out of ten school gardens fail in South Africa. We built an outdoor classroom, uh, no water in Marine Primary, which is where Alroy is based, or minimum well point water, so we couldn't put a big installation in. And what we do there is build an outdoor classroom and then a, a large indigenous garden with all the medicinal stuff and edible stuff in it, and then a small productive garden. The beautiful part about Alroy, though, is that he attended Marine Primary 25-odd years ago, his son is now at Marine Primary and Alroy works at Marine Primary. And it's critical. These are people that live in the community that then take ownership of it. He sent me a WhatsApp this morning. He was very disappointed because community members had jumped across and stolen his carrots. You know, listen, you face these issues. Two types of theft in those communities. One is for profit and those people must go to jail as far as I'm concerned. They're stealing and on selling and then they're stealing because they're hungry. We're busy putting together a a deal with Food Forward South Africa now to look at how we can be a food bank of sorts that can provide those community members with food, but in a dignity transaction. So we're not interested in giving stuff away. People must either volunteer or earn it, and then they get paid in food versus just uh, the sort of handout mentality in Mm. South Africa. Plus, then, those community members become ambassadors for what you're doing and get their hands in earth and start learning those skills and then can take it on home as well. Elroy is amazing, though. I encourage people to go and see what we've done in a year there. I'll put some stuff on Facebook. But we turned a piece of ground that was barren into this biologically diverse regenerative environment. And I've got real umbrage with, in South Africa, this former Model C schools that have had 100, 200 years of investment into them of these beautiful grounds. But you walk into poor communities and they have nothing. To the degree that in Ocean View, community members have asked to get married in our garden. It's the most beautiful space in their community. They hold Sunday school lessons there. (laughs) And it's important that we connect children with food and food production systems. Just before we came into this interview or this chat, I was explaining to Corbis that we did a a garden installation in Kaya at a high school and the kids are so disconnected from plants that they were trying to plant the plants still in the pot plant and you and I would know take it out let the roots be exposed to the earth those kids don't know because they've never been exposed to it and that's the danger of urban yeah. environments you, you also said earlier about how we get with each generation we kind of lose more knowledge so yes I've coined, you know, so the city's a really interesting space for me. It's the biome that humans have created for themselves. They are centers of education, culture, learning, hospitalization, They're where we live and where we bring up our children. And we know that 70% of the world's population is going to live in urban environments by 2030. I mean, around the corner. 
problem with it is that for every generation that grows up in an urban environment, there's a, a disconnect and a forget. I'm a prime example. My parents uh, didn't farm or garden, so we never grew vegetables as kids. And all that knowledge I had to claw back. But it extends beyond that. If you grow up in a city and you buy a loaf of bread, you don't know that bread only has five ingredients, sugar, water, flour, salt, and yeast. And in fact, you can get away with just two of them, flour and water. That's all you need. But modern bread has anywhere between 20 and 37 ingredients. In it. And that means your kids grow up thinking that that modern bread is real bread. And I know that it's not. I don't need all those other things in there and the net effect on my health and well-being in short, medium and long term. I just need the loaf of bread that's honest to what bread used to be. Mm. In fact, that brings me to another point. I don't think people are allergic or have gluten intolerances. I think they have intolerances to things like Roundup and all the rest, and it's coming out in our, in our bodies now. I mean, we've been eating bread as a species for more than 10,000 years. Suddenly, we're like intolerant to eating one of our staple parts of our diet. I saw on your website you're already working on 2020. You've yeah. got some projects out. I wanted to ask you just for people thinking about doing similar projects or entering this space, could you give us some advice on funding a major project like this? Yes, I can. It's no different to business. You know, MPOs are really important and, and I love the social enterprise space because your focus is to do good for communities. But it's no different to any other business or enterprise. I spent five years developing a business plan, and that was everything from cash flow, forecast, projections, building up the relationships with the potential sites, etc. And there was lots of toing and froing from the drawing board. Eventually, I was confident enough to be in a position to pitch for that first funding. I went directly to uh, Premier Zilla at the time. I said, here's what I would like to do. This is the funding I would need. She uh, involved her compatriots from the Department of Agriculture. Elsenberg and they approved the initial capital for, for the project. Anyone who thinks that when you start a business plan that the, what you put down on paper in the beginning is the same as your end goal is seriously mistaken. I mean, we've had to be so agile and every time we implement something, have to address something else right away from HR accounts, retail, all those sort of things. Sadly, a lot of the MPO space is controlled by what I like to think of as generals. So organizations that have been around for a long time controlling the flow of money out of other corporates, etc. I think the language is too academic. I look at ourselves as being grunts on the ground doing the actual work. And I don't have a fancy office. I don't have a fancy car. I don't have any of those things, but I do the work. I think the key piece of advice that I'd give to anyone is do the business plan. But there's a point when you've got to stop talking and start doing I found that there's not enough collaboration in the MPO space. Everyone is protecting their slice of the pie. And this is the terrible part because they can't run profitable business. They're always looking to protect whatever they've got, plus the people that are supporting them. So that sort of free flow of information between MPOs is virtually non-existent. I mean, I work 100-hour weeks, and that's the real key. Um, I look at fundraising a little bit like betting on horses in a horse race. I've got to bet on all 10 that are running and pray that one of them wins. And I've just got to put the hours in, which is the worst part about it. I've had to learn a whole new language to be able to do that. But there are great resources online, and i just got to keep knocking on doors. You know that mm. old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the oil? <laughs> That's me. Are you still filmmaking and the rest of it? Quervis, I battle with filmmaking nowadays. Mm. I only want to do things that are close to my ethics and morals. As an example, uh, people spend more time watching cooking shows nowadays than actually cooking. 
And I think I'm partly guilty, and especially in the food space, of chasing people away from cooking. And if I look at all this plethora of television shows that are out there, master chefs and this and that, producing all these amazing meals on television, I think it's scaring people away from actually cooking. And if I do do more food shows, they're going to be attached to morals, ethics, and they're going to be about course. <laughs> and there must be things that people can actually cook nowadays. And there mustn't be these things with fancy ingredients that you can't find. Now, who cares about foie gras foam and all these things? That's what you go to to a world-class restaurant <laughs> yeah, for that yeah. experience. Do mm. you cook it at home? No. So if I do, it'll be around those key points. Your master course. Your master <laughs> course, exactly. You know? Your master course. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I like comfort food now. Yeah. I want to make food that all of us can make. Yeah. And if you've forgotten, I can help you with that. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really not interested in suivy bags and yeah. wow, it's just too much, man. Before we wrap up, I know that your dream is to create this mosaic of urban mm. farms and gardens. Do you see that coming together? Yes, very recently, in fact. We signed off on partnership with a much bigger organization. And we realized that when I started this project, I didn't realize the scale and scope of what we were doing and the number of moving parts. You know, say urban farming, that's one thing, and we can farm with our eyes closed now. But it's the retail, the HR, the accounts, the management, the working with, you know, to 13-odd schools. So we're partnering with a much bigger organization with a, a very strategic view of 2020, and included in that is, is increasing our national footprint. So next year we put our first garden up, training market garden up in, in Johannesburg mm -hmm. in four ways in conjunction with a, another MPO called LifeCo. And we're going to be marrying um, urban agriculture and education together in an ethical and moral system that mm -hmm. connects us to our food and to each other. I imagine it's still going to be much harder. Every community that you go into has a different set of dynamics that you have to deal with. And as much as you think it's plug and play, it's not. We understand that from farming in, in terroir, every different space you go to has a different type of soil, rainfall conditions, and, and, and. Mm -hmm. And every community is different. But the basic building blocks are there for us to be able to expand. And, you know, that was why we started in, in the South Peninsula of Cape Town. We dealt with everything from informal settlements, apartheid-created settlements, middle-class suburbs, right through to very wealthy community members. And, in fact, I believe that if we're going to create systems in South Africa, regardless if it's underpinned by urban farming or not, we're going to have to connect all those communities together and, and break down those walls to a space where we actually learn how to see each other. Thank you very much. That's what excites us at Food Forms Anze <laughs> as well. Thank you so much for joining us and all the best with the work that you're doing. Thank you. Dawn, that was honestly not what I was expecting. What a down-to-earth guy. Totally yeah. loved it. Next week, you and I are meeting Mos Mosesi. He's a young, dynamic farmer who's literally set up an aquaponics farm in the middle of Tembisa. This guy is someone to watch in the agri-space. He's going to be making waves. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to the Farmer's Inside Track podcast, supported by Food for Mzansi. For more information, find us on www.farmersinsidetrack.co.za.